Welcome, everyone. This is the Council of Institutional Investors Educational Podcast. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. I'm here today with Professor Wayne R. Landsman of the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Landsman is one of the co-authors of a recent research paper entitled The Effect of Changes in Legal Liability on Credit Rating Agencies' Reliance on Financial Statement Information and Rating Quality. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you, Jeff. It's, uh, it's good to be with you. I always appreciate the opportunity to share my research with interested investor groups, regulators, standard setters, and other policymakers interested in banking and the securities markets. So, Professor, as you describe in your paper, in connection with the 2007-2009 financial crisis, many argue that credit rating agencies fundamentally failed in their rating of mortgage-backed securities, and that exacerbated the market collapse. Congress responded by enacting the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act in 2010. Among its many provisions, the act imposed expert liability, or so-called Section 11 liability, on credit rating agencies for material misstatements or omissions in corporate registration statements related to their securities ratings. Your paper studies the impact of that provision on the quality of credit ratings. Can you first explain to our listeners what is expert or Section 11 liability? And second, can you discuss the results of your research? Sure, happy to do so. Um, Section 11 of the Securities Act imposes liability to parties involved in a securities offering if the registration statement contains a materially false statement or material omission. An important provision of the Dodd-Frank Act is that it repealed what is known as Rule 436G of the Securities Act of 1933, which essentially exempted rating agencies from this expert designation in securities regulation. So, as a result, rating agencies became exposed to the expert liability provisions of Section 11 of the Securities Act. Another important provision of the Dodd-Frank Act, beyond uh, that related to the expert liability provisions of Section 11, is that it eliminates the exemption from liability of under Section 21E of the Securities Act of 1934 by no longer considering credit ratings to be forward-looking statements. As a result, plaintiffs suing rating agencies face a lower legal threshold in that they need only to prove that an agency knowingly or recklessly failed to conduct reasonable investigation of the rated security. Now, as for our study, its key purpose is to examine how the increase in legal risk associated with passage of Dodd-Frank Act affected rating agencies' reliance on financial statement information when making credit rating changes. We hypothesize and we find evidence that rating agencies require more financial statement signals before making rating upgrades after passage of Dodd-Frank. Now we measure signals as the number of quarters in the prior two years that financial statement information implied an upgrade using the models that are applied by rating agencies. The basic idea is that more signals is more concrete evidence in support of a rating upgrade decision. That is, less reliance on agency judgment or soft information, which provides the agency with a layer of legal protection, or at least in principle, a layer of legal protection. More importantly, 
for our study, we provide evidence that requiring more signals is stronger for firms and industries with higher legal risk as measured by the number of class action lawsuits faced by the industry before Dodd-Frank and for firms with higher equity volatility. In addition, we predict and find evidence consistent with upgrade quality being higher in the post-Dodd-Frank period as indicated by a smaller number of ratings reversals after upgrades and a lower incidence of defaults after upgrades. Conversely, we also predict that rating agencies should require fewer financial statement signals before making rating downgrades after Dodd-Frank. But we fail to find evidence consistent with this prediction. Well, why? A possibility is that, or a likely explanation, is that the effect of legal liability provisions in Dodd-Frank on downgrades was muted because rating agencies were already incentivized to provide timely downgrades because of political pressure stemming from prior accounting scandals in the early 2000s. Professor, as you know, following the enactment of Dodd-Frank, the credit rating agencies opposed giving consent to their ratings appearing in registration statements for asset-backed securities. As a result, industry lobbyists and some members of Congress raised the prospect of a potential shutdown of the securitization market. The Securities Exchange Commission responded in 2010 by issuing a no-action letter that effectively indefinitely rescinded the Dodd-Frank expert liability provision for ratings of asset-backed securities. So what impact, if any, did the 2010 no-action letter have on the results of your study? Okay, let me begin by saying, in principle, the no-action letter reduced immediate legal exposure for credit rating agencies because firms were not required to include ratings in registration statements. However, if ratings are included, then agencies do face legal exposure under Section 11. And more importantly, the no-action letter could be rescinded at any time. In fact, the SEC stated at the time that it took the no-action position to allow, in quotes, to allow adequate time to complete the regulatory actions required by the Dodd-Frank Act. Now, this suggests that rating agencies' expected legal risk was likely to increase in the future. So even though the no-action letter does not increase immediate legal liability, it likely increased expected legal liability on the part of rating agencies. Professor, on January 13th, a diverse group of researchers and policy advisors submitted a rulemaking petition to the Securities Exchange Commission that included a proposal recommending that the commission should make it clear that credit rating agencies are subject to liability under Section 11. The petition indicates that the suggested reform could be accomplished by the commission either issuing a policy statement or repealing its 2010 no-action letter. As a basis for the recommendation, the petition explains, quote, the credit rating agencies enjoy the profits from their ratings without the risk of liability as experts under Section 11, even though Dodd-Frank clearly provides that they should be subject to such risk. Given the current approach, it is not surprising that the informational value of credit ratings would decline after Dodd-Frank, unquote. So, Professor, do you agree with the petitioners that the informational value of credit ratings has declined since Dodd-Frank? And if you were SEC chairman, would you support either issuing a policy statement clarifying that credit rating agencies are subject to a liability under Section 11 or completely withdrawing the 2010 no-action letter? 
Well, I suppose the answer to your questions depends on the definition of information value of credit ratings. I put information value in quotes. Now, our study's findings indicate that ratings upgrades were of higher quality after Dodd-Frank, as indicated by the smaller number of ratings reversals and defaults following upgrades. Now, this suggests that the information content of rating upgrades possibly increased after passage of the act, which would be a measure of information value. Now, although we do not find evidence of an on average increase, or for that matter, decrease, as some critics might suggest, in information content as reflected by equity price responses to upgrades, we do find an increase in stock price response for upgrades relating to firms and industries in which the rating agency has a relatively high reputation. Now, we measure reputation in our study by the extent of market share of Fitch, where low market share means less competition and hence less pressure to bias ratings in favor of the firm by the rating agency. So thus, our evidence suggests that there was no decline in informational value of credit rating upgrades, and perhaps even an increase for rating upgrades for firms and industries in which the rating agency has a relatively high reputation. Now, let me turn to your question regarding whether if I were the SEC chairman, whether um, I would support either issuing a policy statement clarifying the credit rating agencies are separate to liability under Section 11 or withdrawing the 210 no action letter. Now, as I said, our results suggest that rating agencies do not have to be subject to immediately legal risk ex exposure, but rather the expectation of future legal risk exposure is sufficient to make a difference in their incentives to make unwarranted ratings changes. Withdrawal of the no action letter would not necessarily change the status quo. It might, unless the SEC require rating agencies to give consent to inclusion of their ratings in registration statements, which they do not presently do require. Professor, prior to the federal banking regulators making the decision to shut down Silicon Valley Bank on March 10th, credit rating agency Moody's Investor Service had given the bank an A rating. As you know, an A rating means that the risk of Silicon Valley Bank not meeting its financial obligations or to default was considered to be low. So based on publicly available information and your expert knowledge of credit rating agencies, is it fair to criticize Moody's for not downgrading Silicon Valley Bank prior to March 10th? Well, at one level, it's kind of a complicated question, but at another level, it's not very complicated. My understanding is that SVB did not have a risk management officer for an extended period before March 10th and had large unrealized losses on their investment portfolio, in particular their treasury bonds. Both of these are fairly substantial, serious red flags. And it's really pretty surprising being a, an armchair quarterback after the fact. It's surprising that Moody's didn't say anything, that these red flags, which were pretty clear to see, somehow didn't cause Moody's to take any actions. On the other hand, neither did the banking regulators. They didn't do anything either. So I, that when I said it's a complicated question, I said there's a lot of blame to go around. And um, I would suggest that Moody's made mistakes, but so did banking regulators. Professor, final question. In addition to being one of the top accounting and capital market researchers and academics in the country, you're also one of the top experts on college basketball, and in particular, the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. I think many college basketball experts would probably agree that Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player to play for the Tar Heels. But setting Michael Jordan aside, who do you believe was the greatest basketball player to ever wear the Carolina Blue. 
This is the most difficult question you've asked me already today. Uh, no doubt about it. Much, much more difficult than all the other questions. Well, the answer to your question is that there's simply too many outstanding basketball players at Carolina to name just one. The list is extensive and quite long. Charlie Scott, Bob McAdoo, James Worthy, Brad Doherty, Jerry Stackhouse, Rashid Wallace, Antoine Jameson, Vince Carter, Sean May, Tyler Hansbrough, many of whom had extended very successful NBA careers, all-stars, and were Nationals Players of the Year. This is to name just a few of many, many. I could go on and on. We'd be here a long time. But let's just say the real key factor here is that Dean Smith was the greatest coach of all time. He won two national titles, but he would have won many, many more had he not encouraged his star players to enter the NBA early. He wanted them to take advantage of the opportunities to have a successful career. He didn't want to hold them back and keep them at, in college at North Carolina. However, Dean Smith was a strong believer in the student part of student athlete and had a graduation rate during his time at Carolina of close to 100% of his players. If you count the stars who came back to finish up at school after leaving for the NBA. In fact, he was famous for uh, mandating, almost requiring their his his student athletes to have in their contracts a clause where they would get a bonus from their club when they finished college and when they graduated. That concludes our podcast episode. On behalf of the Council of Institutional Investors, I want to again thank my special guest, Professor Wayne R. Landsman of the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, aka Blue Heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to contact me at Jeff. J-E-F-F at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.